Basic democratic rights and perhaps democracy itself, even bourgeois democracy, is under attack. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show on patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We can't do this show without the support and backing and contributions from our listeners. Today, we're talking with Esther Averam. Esther is a longtime journalist, producer, and host of the On the Ground Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital program, which comes out every week on Fridays. Check it out again on Fridays at onthegroundshow.org and more than two dozen Pacifica stations nationwide. Esther, we're talking today about voting rights. I mean, on this program where you and Nicole and Walter and myself have been talking for the past almost two years, we've talked about voting rights a lot. But I want to have a particular focus for a couple shows that really sort of zero in on the issue of voting rights, because in a way, when the language of the attack on voting rights is used over and over again, in a way, it becomes sort of cliche-ish or, or something that is just normalized. And we don't really fully understand exactly how voting rights are under attack. And also... While we know voting rights have been under attack, at least for Black America, for Latino American, for the immigrant community earlier, for women, for low-income people, generally speaking, that's been a sort of a theme of American history. We are now in an accelerated drive by the right wing in the United States to destroy voting rights, to undermine, obstruct, subvert, inhibit, or end voting rights for big parts of the population. So I wanted to talk to you. This is going to be the first of a multi-part series. There's so much ground to cover. We want to talk about the history of the suppression of voting rights. We want to talk about the Voting Rights Act of 1965, what it was meant to do. We want to talk about the Shelby decision in 2013, where the Supreme Court basically gutted the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But the context of right now, the context of this period, this moment, is in the aftermath of the January 6th attacks, the preparations by the ultra-right to limit or suppress or end democracy or the form of governance or the way government is formed or the way we think of the way the government has been formed. That's all happening. This is happening in real time. And at the same time, on Wednesday, tomorrow, the Congressional January 6th Committee is having what is described, at least so far, as its final hearing. So let's get started. Again, we had the Roe v. Wade decision that ended abortion rights for women 
and anyone needing an abortion, a right that existed ever since Roe v. Wade when the Supreme Court ruled by a 7 to 2 margin in 1973 that abortion was, in fact, a right. Now we have coming up, the Supreme Court has agreed to numerous other cases that will, again, put democratic rights on the chopping block, including voting rights. So let's get started. Yeah, well, Brian, thanks for having me here to talk about this very important issue. I think that the decision to reverse Roe emboldened the Supreme Court to look at what they call privacy rights and to question whether these rights that we have taken for granted, you know, that we consider to be part of our democratic rights, to consider whether they are actually rights given to us in the Constitution. So to reverse Roe, some of the justices hinting at other privacy rights, such as same-sex marriage or even birth control for women, laws, decisions that have been put into place either at the time of Roe or after Roe have been put into question. And so voting rights is another right that is under attack, as you said. The court is going to consider a case called Moore v. Harper. And it is very much connected to what's happening with the January 6th committee and is going to take up this case, this issue of the independent state legislature theory, which basically says that only state legislatures, not state courts or constitutions or election commissions and other other people who are doing the work of ensuring only the legislature can make rules regarding how the election should take place. And when you look at everything that the committee has brought out in terms of the votes in the 2020 election being challenged, it's all going back to this theory that people in various states, Republicans, people on the far right are putting forward that any types of rules that were put into place to help people vote during the pandemic, help the elderly, the young people, to help particularly people in black and brown communities vote, well, these attempts to make the election more fair and accessible, they don't count. And so therefore the election was stolen and, you know, Biden didn't win. So this is the argument being put forward. So it's very dangerous. You have a far-right court that has already overturned Roe, now taking up more v. Harper. And you have some justices on the court already indicating that they believe in this, what was once considered a very far-right fringe theory, giving state legislatures all this power. You know, this is being watched very carefully. It's very dangerous, and people are mobilizing to oppose this and figuring out what can happen in the other branches of government, basically to secure people's rights. We have covered on this show how the Democrats failed to pass the For the People Act and other legislation that would have enshrined certain voting rights and taking it out of the purview of the courts, but they didn't do that, even to protect their own voting base. So it's come down to the Supreme Court. Well, Moore versus Harper is this North Carolina case, and the state Supreme Court in North Carolina ruled that the Republican state legislature had gerrymandered the election laws in the congressional districts in such a way that Black people would be essentially disenfranchised largely, and that Republicans would always win. And 
So the state Supreme Court said, no, go back to the drawing board, redo this. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. So the Republican-led legislature lost that decision. They lost. The state Supreme Court ruled that they had to redraw and redo the gerrymandering because it was so biased. Then the Supreme Court decided to take up the case. In order for the Supreme Court to hear a case, there are thousands of applications for cases to be heard by the Supreme Court. It only takes a fraction of them. But in order for it to be accepted, at least four of the nine judges have to accept it. The fact that Moore versus Harper is coming up in the next Supreme Court session means that four of the justices wanted to discuss it. The question is, why did they want to discuss it? Obviously, the only reason to discuss it is to talk about the Republican state legislature argument that not the state Supreme Court, not the state constitution, certainly not the federal government, only the state legislature, according to the electors clause in the constitution, has the right to determine anything about the elections. And so it may be, it may be that this new Supreme Court will uphold the independent state legislature theory or a version of it. And Esther, this goes directly to the basic core arguments that were, or the conspiracy that was unleashed by the Trump team after they narrowly lost the electoral college vote in the 2020 election, which was to come up with alternate slates for electors that would be ratified by state legislatures And their argument was that only the state legislatures, they and they alone, had the authority, that no one else had the authority to determine how the election outcome was presented, meaning the conventional way that electoral college votes are distributed, which is based on who won the majority vote in a particular state. That could be if there was a challenge to who actually did win, the state legislature would determine which slate of electors would be considered valid. And at the same time as this, as you put it, the emboldened right-wing Supreme Court did away with, eviscerated Roe v. Wade, and now feels like they have the wind in their sails. They're taking up this case. And simultaneously, Esther, the Republican Party is on the march to try to reorganize and restructure the entire way the election infrastructure is constructed in the United States. Let's just talk about what they're doing. As a matter of fact, we have an audio clip. This is a recording from October 5th, 2021, of one of a series of Republican Party trainings with activists in Wayne County, Michigan, that was recorded, and then it was obtained by Politico. You'll hear Matthew Seyfried, the RNC, Republican National Committee's Election Integrity Director for Michigan, talking to this group of Republican Party volunteers, organizers, and operatives. Let's listen to the clip. It's about 25 seconds. Then I want to get your reactions to how the Supreme Court decision plays in with this attempt to sort of reorganize the way the election infrastructure actually looks in the United States. We are trying to recruit, truly, it's going to be an army, right? We are going to try to recruit lawyers. We're going to have more lawyers than have ever been recruited, because let's be honest, that's where it's going to be fought, right? We're going to have lawyers that work early to build relationships with different judges, so that when that happens, we're going to have lawyers that have relationships with the police chiefs in the different areas, with the police officers in the different areas, so that when that happens, those pre-existing relationships are already established. 
So Esther, I hope people can make out the hearing, but he's basically saying we're going to create an army of lawyers and organizers who will develop relations with local police departments so that whatever happens locally, they're going to be in charge. Wow. This is really goes hand in hand with what was attempted in the 2020 election. You know, here in D.C., we had just in terms of political intimidation and political violence, you know, or the threat of it, you know, to make people intimidated. So maybe that they don't vote or they don't come out to vote at all or these officials in the aftermath can say who can vote and what votes will be tossed out. So this is very important. You connected to what has been happening with the January 6th committee and all of this intimidation, these threats of violence, that's what's kind of come out in some part during the January 6th committee. And I thought about it when we were talking about doing the show The idea to empower the state legislatures, it goes back to the beginning of Trump's slow motion coup. And we talked a little bit about it on the show in terms of very early on going after all the ways that officials are trying to make it easier for people to vote during the pandemic. Right. So we had a big ramp up in mail in ballots developing ways for people to vote by mail, voting drop boxes, drive-through voting. I remember hearing about drive-through voting in Texas, especially in Houston, in a very large urban area. Having other people be able to drop your ballot off for you if you were disabled, you were elderly. Early voting, you know, souls to the polls, which has been a really successful way for Black people to vote and not only to vote, but to protect themselves, you know, to go in groups, to maybe defy these types of efforts to have police or the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers or other people like that around polls to intimidate people and also to have more convenient voting locations. So these are the types of rules put into place by, you know, perhaps election commissions, officials whose job it is to facilitate the vote. These are the types of laws that these various state legislatures controlled by Republicans. These are the types of laws that they tried to strike down. And they tried to say that, okay, if the state legislature did not put this into place or they opposed it, then it cannot exist legally. And these votes cannot exist legally. And, you know, there was some way of kind of casting this as a political maneuver. The Democrats were just trying to bring out their base. But even if it was, there's supposed to be a right to vote. And the idea that Republicans, the far right throughout this country, not only schemed to do this in 2020, but is ramping up the effort in the election later this year and in 2024 is alarming. And there's just not concerted effort by the Democrats, which is supposed to be the political opposition, to do something about this. And so, you know, I think we as the people have to be aware of it and be prepared to fight back. One of the reasons I think this issue is so important is that if you believe in social change, if you believe in justice, if you want to change the system or get a new system, it's really not going to come about because of elections. So we're not really talking about this because we think elections are everything. Far from it. I mean, all the really major, impressive social justice reforms that have been achieved, whether the right to organize a union, which came in the 1930s, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the desegregation movement, 
the voting rights of 1965, Roe v. Wade, abortion rights, marriage equality, all of these really important social reforms that are indeed on the chopping block right now, they were won because of people's struggle. It was the grassroots struggle of the people, the fire from below. But having said that, the issue of especially the black vote or black America's right to vote or its inability to vote, its disenfranchisement has been actually fundamental to the construction of this particular form of capitalism, the United States social and economic order. This social and economic order was premised on the disenfranchisement of black America in particular. And you can see throughout history, and we're going to do another show just about this history, to see that if it hadn't been for the disenfranchisement of black people, the ability of the white supremacist, openly white supremacist, unabashed, racist, fascist character of the state would have been checked. It wouldn't have evolved the way it evolved. You know, after the Civil War, after black men won the right to vote with the Civil War amendments to the Constitution, the white voters in Florida were a minority. They were a minority. So they had to set about figuring out how to make sure black people didn't have the right to vote, even though they legally had the right to vote. So there was the black codes, a felony conviction disqualified you from voting. That meant that there was lots of people were arrested and charged, overcharged with felonies. All kinds of tricks were done in order to maintain the disenfranchisement of black America. So when we talk about this issue, Esther, it's not just because we think elections are the vehicle for change. This is actually a cornerstone of white supremacy and a particular version of capitalism. And in the last 30 years, since 1988, the Republicans have only won the federal election, the presidential popular vote, one time. That was in 2004, because the country is too urban, it's too black, it's too Latino, it's too young. You know, it's not going along with the right wing program. So the right wing of the ruling class and their supporters from different classes in society, they think the key here, the key element to getting through the right wing program is to go back to the tried and true measure of basically disenfranchising voters and especially black America. That's why this issue is so important. Absolutely. And one fact that I try to bring up when I can is the fact that after the January 6th insurrection, Representative Benny Thompson of Mississippi, he initiated a lawsuit in conjunction with the NAACP based on the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act. And he sued Trump, Rudy Giuliani, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and Anybody he thought was responsible for initiating violence to try to prevent the certification of the election of 2020. And I think that's so important. Now, since then, he has actually withdrawn from that particular lawsuit, but that lawsuit is still ongoing with the NAACP and there are other lawsuits similarly focused because when you look at what happened and when you look at what is happening with these far-right groups and their effort to initiate and to introduce violence into the political process is very much reminiscent of what happened during Reconstruction when there were, according to the Equal Justice Initiative, at least 34 documented mass lynchings during the Reconstruction era. That includes at least 20 people being shot to death in a 
New Orleans protests for voting rights. And most of the violence and the particular lynchings, horrible atrocities happening during Reconstruction happened when Black people, and at that time, just Black men, tried to vote. And so it's very apropos for Thompson to initiate that type of lawsuit for other people to be using that 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act to refer to what is happening today because through violence, through terror, the Klan and other groups were able to prevent people from voting in conjunction with these, you know, black codes and other laws that systematically scooped up black people into the so-called judicial system to make them, you know, felons. That's where you get these laws that prevent people who were formerly incarcerated from voting. It comes from that area because if you can just arrest everyone and charge them with a felony and convict them, then automatically you, you disqualify them from voting. So all these types of laws that still exist today in so many places in the South, like in Florida, they came from this era. And you can see proof of what you're talking about. And as a matter of fact, when people in Florida passed a referendum to give, you know, formerly incarcerated people the right to vote, to get rid of this old Jim Crow law, the state put new laws in place so that, you know, formerly incarcerated people had to pay back money for court fees or whatever, any types of fees that I guess only the state could invent that had to be paid before they could vote. And so wealthy people who wanted to, you know, do the right thing, like LeBron James, the basketball star, they gave money to pay off these so-called debts of formerly incarcerated people in Florida so that they could vote. And then the state wanted to go after them and say, no, that's illegal. You can't pay it off. So (laughs) there was just this obvious effort to keep people from voting, to keep formerly incarcerated people, largely black and brown, low-income people from voting. And so these efforts continue to this day on the state level, while now you have the Supreme Court issuing certain rulings, beginning with Shelby, as you mentioned, to eviscerate voting rights. And that's expected to continue with this taking up these cases during this term. People might not know how far advanced voter suppression was as a thing. People who came to the polls in these states, and it wasn't just Southern states, but especially in Southern states, but not only, people were asked in order to vote, you had to pay a poll tax. You had to pay money, a poll tax that was imposed by local authorities. That poll tax, by the way, People will think, oh, that disappeared, you know, in the 19th century. No, the Supreme Court said a poll tax is illegal when? In 1966, 1966, the year after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. People who came to vote, if you were black in the South, you were asked to give your interpretation of passages of the U.S. Constitution. You're giving very complicated literacy tests or poll taxes, all of these methods to disenfranchise black voters. And in some of the states, like, as I said, in Florida, after the end of slavery, after the end of the Civil War, the black voting population would have been the majority. Same in South Carolina. You mentioned the 1871 KKK, Ku Klux Klan Act, about voter suppression. Well, this voting suppression went on, quote, legally all the way up until after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. William Rehnquist, William Rehnquist, who was the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court from 1986 to 2005, 
He was a Republican nominee for the court. He was personally one of the top leaders of what was called Operation Eagle Eye in the state of Arizona in the 1960s. I'm not talking about the 1930s or 19th century. I'm talking about the 1960s. And what they did is they went around and intimidated black and Latino voters in precincts which were going to vote Democratic in the state of Arizona. So these were these Republican thug operations designed to basically scare, intimidate, threaten, hound, harass black people so they couldn't vote. And this was, you know, very, very prevalent. I want to go back to how this also connects to January 6th and the fact that the Supreme Court is now going to listen and make a ruling on the Moore v. Harper case, the North Carolina gerrymandering case. I want to play a clip from 60 Minutes uh, CBS show. It's former congressman, Republican congressperson, Denver Riggleman. Obviously, he's on because he's promoting his new book, The Breach. But Riggleman was able, because he was part of the investigation after January 6th, to unearth the text messages and then trace the origin of the text messages to Mark Meadows, who was Donald Trump's chief of staff, after Trump lost the Electoral College which they learned the night of the election in 2020 or the next morning. Let's listen to this clip. It's about 25 seconds. But again, all of this connects back to what the Republicans are actually planning to do. And it's not just the Republicans. I'm talking about the right wing of the U.S. ruling class in America that has decided that the way for the U.S. empire to get, quote, back on its feet and end this era of decline is to get rid of gridlock. And the way to get rid of gridlock is to get rid of democracy or democratic rights, to have a streamlined right-wing government that regardless of where the popular vote goes, they're going to be in charge. Let's listen to this clip. You have said these texts provide irrefutable, time-stamped proof of a comprehensive plot at all levels of government to overturn the election. Irrefutable. Irrefutable. Early in the text messages, they were talking about alternate electors, you know, I think as soon as November 5th or November 6th. Right off the bat. Come on. Right off the bat. Esther, this is where it's going, because if they were already trying to get alternative elector slates, and now the U.S. Supreme Court says, well, in fact, state legislatures, which are 30 of the 50, are controlled by right-wing Republicans because of gerrymandering, if they and they alone are the final determinant about what electors are valid, you can kind of see where this goes. Absolutely. So we know from the January 6th hearings already that there were attempts in several states. There was also recent testimony in Congress, not necessarily a part of the January 6th committee, where election officials in states where Republicans have a majority in the legislature, they have received threats, Many have resigned their jobs. These are actually Republicans, people who you could say held the line in 2020, people who, because of their own sense of integrity and they weren't a part of this effort in 2020 to overturn the election, it's because of them that this attempt wasn't successful in 2020. Many of those people are resigning now or have been pushed out 
other people who are part of this far right machinery to try to overturn the election. These people are being elected. And so, yes, that was part of the plot when they said that they were relying on Mike Pence. They were relying on Mike Pence to accept these alternative electors, to not accept the electors that were duly put in place because of the election, but to accept these alternative electors. And so he was supposed to not certify the election and or accept these alternative electors instead. Right now, as this campaign is underway, and again, it's the far right. So there's the Republican Party, the Republicans and the Democrats, the two ruling class parties, they take turns ruling in the United States. The Republican Party has always been a right-wing party, essentially a white party, more openly racist than the Democrats, even though both parties are very guilty of racism on many, many, many levels. But the Republican Party has been divided because now Trump and the the Trump phenomena and Trump sort of enlisting a mass base for his politics, it's had this transformational character and the far right, the ultra right is now on the march and feeling very, very emboldened. And the U.S. Supreme Court, which has been basically taken over by Federalist Society, handpicked Federalist Society. Federalist Society is a very right-wing organization that's been trying to stack and has successfully stacked federal district courts, appeals courts, and the Supreme Court. They're now all about it. They want to also undo all of the Democratic achievements like Roe v. Wade and the civil rights movement, which they opposed. William Rehnquist, when he was chief justice, he did everything to promote the independent state legislature theory The Supreme Court in 2000, when Bush, George W. Bush, lost the election by 500,000 votes to Al Gore and would have won the state of Florida as well. But the Florida recount was stopped by the Supreme Court in a five to four decision. They said there would be irreparable harm done to the Republicans by continuing to count the votes. And so they granted an injunction and the vote stopped. And Bush won the state, I think, with 547 votes out of 6 million cast. But if the rest of the votes had been you know, counted, Gore would have been the president. Now, the Republicans sent all of these people, including Amy Coney Barrett, the most recent right-wing Trump appointee to the Supreme Court, all of these operatives, Brett Kavanaugh too, they were sent to Florida. They created sort of a mob scenario around where the people were counting the vote. This court is now going to be sort of an ally of the far right in trying to reconfigure how government is formed, because in the current form, as undemocratic as it is, they still can't completely succeed with carrying out the right wing agenda of eliminating all of these progressive democratic rights that have been achieved since the 1930s. So they need to change the form of government. And, you know, the New York Times actually did a fairly good piece an opinion piece describing this, Esther, about how the right wing is creating this army of lawyers and organizers, far right organizers, working with local police departments, intimidating local election officials. So instead of trying to intimidate the election officials coming forward, say in 2024, this far right are trying to become the election officials. That's the new plan. And it's operational. It's happening. And as you put it, The Democrats don't have any commensurate regime of organizing. This is really a far right, super far right organizing operation that's going 
pretty much unchecked right now. Right. And when you think about how much it dovetails with the white supremacist, like great replacement theory, you can see how groups like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys are integrated into this attempt to intimidate people at polling sites or to, in some cases, become local officials themselves. I think there is a school board or there are some official bodies in Florida where Proud Boys hold a number of seats, like either elected or appointed seats. So you have this kind of steady encroachment on the political system by the far right. And when I talk about the Great Replacement Theory, it reminds me that when Obama was elected, that spurred a lot of these activities because even now, some of the people, when they are refuting that Black people's voting rights are being attacked, they'll say, well, that's not true. They voted for Obama. Look, Obama was elected the first Black president. You know, surely we don't have voter restrictions or suppression in this country. (laughs) And his election really galvanized a lot of these far-right white supremacist groups. And that hasn't gone away. It's only ramped up more since then. And so during his election, you know, you remember that Trump was a part of the so-called birther movement. He was a big champion of that, saying that Obama was not born in the United States and really couldn't run for president. And so his campaign for the 2016 election was, you know, echoing a lot of these really racist themes and really dovetailing with a lot of the far right that is alarmed about the growing population of black and brown people in this country, the estimates that at what time the country will no longer be majority white. And so a lot of these attempts, a lot of this racist voter suppression has to do with that and a lot of the other tenets of the great replacement theory. So like the Proud Boys, for example, the misogyny of the Proud Boys. And and so they would be very, very much supportive of an attempt to reverse Roe v. Wade. And I think they talk about venerating the the housewife, right? And how just the appearance of women in the workplace has hurt society. You know, they believe in the, that, you know, the white man has made the modern world, you know? And so any movement by people of color, of women, of any color, the LGBTQ population, anything that gives them rights and the ability to be full citizens. All these things are threats to white supremacists who obviously include the right to vote in something that they can take away from the majority of the population to try to keep Black people in particular, you know, under the thumb of white supremacy and to deny people their rights. I want to read a couple paragraphs from the Brennan Center. Brennan Center is a liberal think tank. People should check it out. Again, it's not radical. It's not socialist. It's very liberal. But they do really excellent research on the question of voter suppression, and in particular, its racist character. I want to read a little bit to you about it. Since January 2021, I want to read a little bit from their document. Esther, and since January 2021, as documented by the Brennan Center, there are more than 30 new laws restricting voting rights in different states, 30 just in less than two years. Here's from the Brennan Center. As new restrictive laws take effect, there is mounting evidence that they are already disenfranchising voters. For instance, fewer than 1% of absentee ballots were rejected in Texas in 2020 
after the state enacted a stringent voter ID requirement for those ballots, rejection rates skyrocketed and reached almost 22% in the largest counties. And after Georgia passed mail voting restrictions, M-A-I-L, mail voting restrictions, voters in the state's 2021 local elections were 45 times more likely to have their mail ballot applications rejected and ultimately not vote as a result than one year earlier in 2020. These voting restrictions are disproportionately harming people of color. Black voters make up one-third of Georgia's electorate, but accounted for half of all of the rejected late ballot applications last year. An analysis in Florida found that the state's new restrictions on ballot drop boxes impose greater burdens on black voters than any other group. And researchers have shown the racial turnout gap grows when states enact stricter voting identification laws. And here's the final paragraph. The cumulative impact of voting barriers is significant. Black voters wait on average 45% longer than white voters to cast their ballot, with some voters in majority black cities like Atlanta waiting upwards of 10 hours to vote. And contrary to popular belief, turnout among black voters and other voters of color remains significantly lower than among white voters. Despite the record overall turnout in the 2020 election, the last federal election, only 58.4% of non-white voters participated compared to 70.9% of white voters. The participation gap persists. So clearly, if we think about it, Esther, if let's say the black voter turnout was not 58%, but 78%, the already dire situation that the ultra-right finds itself in when it goes to the polls would be basically, they'd be done. So their goal is to eliminate these voters, to make the problem go away by making voting go away. Absolutely. If you look at some of the far-right websites and you just read through their rationale for saying that the 2020 election was stolen, you can see how they are using all manner of legalese to make these arguments that are really ridiculous. I mean, citing those statistics that you just said, that's what's really happening, as opposed to the kind of fictional voter fraud or voter lack of integrity or fake voters, whatever arguments that they're coming up with, those things don't exist. But it seems that in taking up this type of case, the Supreme Court is allowing those types of arguments to come forth. So just reading through some of the material this weekend, I saw that there's this website for American Spectator. I guess this is a really far right organization, spectator.org. And I just saw that the writer for this article I was reading was Ken Blackwell. And he was Secretary of State of Ohio during that really controversial 2004 election when there were these Diebold machines 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 that had no paper trail that were operated by this you know corporation with ties to the Republican Party and you know in that election of course John Kerry lost to George Bush George W Bush's second term 
this is a black man. And he is making all these arguments, just basically saying that the title of the article is a reminder. State legislators have constitutional power over elections. Conservative majorities at the state level are constitutionally well positioned to demand vote integrity and accurate counts. So, you know, using this whole guise about integrity and, you know, avoiding fraud, they are implementing these types of measures that you're talking about that are having the types of effects that you're detailing there. Esther, we're going to continue this discussion again for our audience. This is the the beginning of a multi-part series on the assault on voting rights that is taking place throughout the United States. Again, we're doing it not because we believe that the vote or voting is the method for social change, far from it, but we're recognizing that the right wing in the United States is dissatisfied with the form of governance that exists because the urban parts of the country, 83% of the population lives in urban America. The black population, the Latino population, the fact that young people have the right to vote once you're 18 years old, the right wing knows that its program does not have majority support. So the only way to really implement this far right program, which again, since 2016, the right wing feels very emboldened, but the Supreme Court has you know, been on this war path against voting rights ever since 2013, in particular, when the right wing Supreme Court, again, its right wing composition was determined by the fact that the Supreme Court stole the election in 2000 for George W. Bush, who then appointed Samuel Alito and others, and and then later Trump having three of the nine Supreme Court justices. You know, Trump didn't win the popular vote. George W. Bush didn't win the popular vote. But these unelected Supreme Court appointees who have been selected in the last 20 years, Clarence Thomas came earlier, they are determined to basically change the form of governance or the way the government is formed so that the right-wing agenda can be implemented. And there is an army of right-wing operatives trying to make it happen around the country. That's why we, who are socialists, who really want profound radical change, who are not willing to accept even the limited bourgeois democracy that exists in the United States, who are always fighting for more economic, social, and political democracy, even though we know that the real solution here of course, is a socialist transformation in society, we have to also notice that the right wing is on the march and their immediate targets are Black America, Latino immigrant communities, women, the LGBTQ community. We are duty bound to mobilize, to fight back, to build a movement against this right wing assault. We're going to continue this discussion with Esther Averam in upcoming episodes. Thanks, Brian. I'm really looking forward to continuing the series. And I just want to say that this whole issue about does voting matter always comes up. You know, it's come up often when I'm doing my shows and especially when I talk to people, callers who called into the show at that point. And I always told them that, you know, voting is just one tool in the toolbox. It's not like we're saying that voting is the end all be all. Obviously, it's not. And just because Democrats, you know, cynically use the vote to kind of, you know, for their own means that aren't really improving our lives, that's not a reason not to vote. I just 
always tell people that don't let them take your vote away because if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't try so hard to take it away. So really important to always tell people, especially young people, that this is just one tool in the toolbox. It's your right to vote as a citizen and you shouldn't let anyone take it away from you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.